A communion service is a time to think about God's amazing saving grace. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we turn to his word together today. Father, we thank you for what we've already remembered. And now we pray that the Holy Spirit will be our real teacher through your word, that we'll hear from you the message that we need to hear, that you'll speak graciously to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. A communion service is also a good time to think deeply about the fundamentals of our Christian faith. And so this morning, I want us to think together from God's Word about a very fundamental question indeed. What does it really mean to become and to be a Christian? Now there are many ways that the Bible answers that question. There are a variety of descriptions and images and metaphors it gives in language like being born again or being part of God's new creation or getting saved, language about repenting and believing or becoming a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And we should learn from all of those different ways that the Bible describes what it means to be and than to live as a Christian. But this morning, I wanted to turn to a key passage in the Gospel of John, and Pastor Tim has read from it already, where we'll find another crucial way of describing what it means to be a Christian. And I encourage you to compare sort of what you think about that with what we think of together from the Scriptures today. So go back with me to John chapter 17, We'll be focusing on verse 3, but I just want to back up and read a little bit more again, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples just before his trial and the crucifixion, his saving death that we just commemorated in the communion meal. And he's praying what's been called his high priestly prayer for his disciples. And it says he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And then this. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, that is, that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this will be our key verse. Eternal life, Jesus says, amounts to knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So we want to think about what does it mean to truly know the only true God, the only God that there really is, that actually exists. But I want to briefly connect the idea of knowing God to some key verses in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this that he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then again from Jeremiah, and this is the great prophecy of the new covenant that we again have just commemorated the inauguration of it through the saving death of Jesus as we came to the communion service. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. They were redeemed by blood and power then. God made a covenant as their king and savior. And they were to respond, already redeemed by his grace, by his blood and power, to be his obedient people. And so they were to keep the Ten Commandments and live by those commandments. But our fallenness is so deep and so intense and we're such slaves to sin that the old covenant couldn't work not because of anything on God's side, but because of our own sin. And so that's why God is making this new covenant. It says, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. In other words, God is saying, Yahweh is saying, I did everything from my side that I was supposed to do with my covenant partner, with my wife, Israel. But Israel was unfaithful. And so he says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The old covenant was written down on tablets of stone. But now the advance in the new covenant is that it's all going to be brought inside to our very hearts, to the core of our beings, to what we are as people. And he gives the fundamental reaffirmation of the basic promise of the covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then this. No longer will will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. Because in the new covenant salvation, they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's a glorious new covenant salvation. So again, the key question for all of us this morning is, what does it mean to truly know the only true God? Well, knowing God is another way of describing having eternal life here in John 17, verse 3, of having saving fellowship with God, according to 1 John chapter 1, of being saved, in other words. It's a matter of knowing the true God, the real God, the only God who actually exists. And that phrase, the true and living God, shows up from time to time in both Old and New Testaments just to keep reminding Human beings might keep up making up their own gods, whether metal images or mental images. I like to think of God as whatever follows that sentence. But there's only one God who actually exists. There's only one God who's really there. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God the Father that we know through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, the authentic, real, truly existing God. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. This idea then of knowing, it can sound like just sort of a theological phrase, but I want us to try to drill down a little deeper to understand it better. We talked about it last Sunday evening in the teaching time, and we used a striking phrase from Genesis 4 as a starting point, where in the King James and the New King James that really translated away a little bit more literally, it says, and Adam knew Eve. Now we all know that that means Adam had the most intimate relations possible with another person. Adam had sexual relations with Eve. But the language of the Bible is Adam knew Eve. And you see that language appear from time to time in the New Testament as well. And so last Sunday night, the summary description of what it means to know God that I put together from my study for that message is this. And it's sort of long, but I just wanted to include at least one time in the message all the ingredients as we'll look at the different parts together. Knowing God by knowing Christ is an intimate, all-encompassing, ongoing, covenantal, that is, God pledges and promises to be certain things to us, and we respond to his initiating grace by promising and pledging to be certain things to him, to be his obedient servants, to be his loving children. So it's an, it's an intimate, all-encompassing, ongoing, covenantal, experiential relationship. It's not just about knowing about, it's knowing God this relationship to God that's based on Christ's saving work, what we celebrated in communion, and it's brought about by the Word of God, blessed by the Spirit of God. James 1.18 says, He chose to give us birth through the Word of truth. Paul wrote, Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word, the message of Christ the message from Christ, and the message about him that, again, what we have in our Bibles. What Paul said to Timothy was the wisdom that leads to salvation. So the core that I want you to see and that I want to experience more and more deeply, knowing God is an intimate, ongoing, word-shaped relationship with God day after day in a very experiential way. It's brought about through the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the core of the word of God. But for it to go forward, for it to grow and to get richer, it keeps responding to more and more of God's word that we have in scripture. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought a lot of times I sort of think in analogies and my mind went to a few here because a key principle is this. 
if we are really going to know God and have a relationship, what I would really call a, a friendship with God in an authentic, life-changing way, we have to have sufficient exposure to God's word because that's his self-communication that creates and sustains the relationship. We have to have sufficient exposure to God's word for all of this to kick in, so to speak, for conversion to happen and then sanctification to move forward. And the analogy I thought of comes from a not pleasant area to think about at first, so I'll move to uh, better ones in a minute, but recently, through all that we keep hearing about, the, the, the pandemic and the illness that goes with it, you'll hear sometime when you go a little bit more in depth, and they'll talk about, well, whether or not you get the illness depends on the amount, the viral load, and we're all learning terms uh, we never thought we'd learn, and hopefully, God willing, before long, we'll be able to forget. But the idea is, you've got to get, to use old language, enough of the germs in order to really get sick. That a little bit of exposure for a brief, that's not going to do very much. That's not really going to infect you. What I want to say is, we have to be heavily exposed in an ongoing way to God's truth if it's really going to, this time, in a blessed way, infect us, change us. Let me say other analogies. If you have another kind of infection, this time, think of it in healing. Maybe you've traveled somewhere and you find out, oh, I've got this kind of infection. You'll need antibiotics. And the few times, thankfully, that I've had to take them, it's always a matter of finding them strong enough and taking them long enough for them really to have their intended healing effect. Or leave the medical field, a Wi-Fi connection. If it's weak, if it's spotty, it's hard to get much of the data, the info, the communication, whatever it might be, that you want to get. You might get a little bit and then you lose it halfway through and it's frustrating. It didn't really download, it didn't really transfer because the connection is weak. Or one more, one that I know uh, very little about. That is, you say, I'm going to start eating healthy. Eating healthy, nutritious food. And you do it for a day and a half. And then you revert to, I'm headed to Culver's and the Butterburgers. Well, that little bit, dabbling in it for just a brief time, or, or maybe, you know, you eat horrible six days a week and you reverse the whole cheat day and you have one, only one observance day. You're not going to get, wow, I'm not losing a lot of weight. Wow, I'm not getting a lot more healthy. The analogy, the problem for many professing Christians or many people who sort of get interested a little bit in religion and spirituality is that their exposure to, their intake of God's saving and sanctifying truth through his word is just too little. It's too seldom. And it's not really enough to ward off all the infections of the lies of this world, all the error, all the misbeliefs about God that are out there, it's not enough 
to really ward those off and to take root in our lives. It's not enough to really truly produce a real and authentic and life-changing relationship to God. So we'll need to think about the absolutely crucial day-by-day dynamic of receiving God's word and connecting to God in prayer because it's that back-to-back communication and conversation that deepens and sustains the kind of friendship with God, really knowing God, that we're talking about this morning. I have to say, though, to be honest, I often wonder whether this is really what most of Christianity and most churches is really all about or aiming for anyway, knowing God. To be honest, even when I say or hear the phrase, I think, hmm, that sounds like sort of deep level, intense, deluxe Christianity. I'm happy to say for just get me saved version. But what we're seeing this morning, the way Jesus described it in John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life to know the living and true God. This is the life of the true believer, the life of ongoing salvation. But again, there are all kinds of reasons that people get interested in religion religion or spirituality. Just think about some of these with me a little bit. Some people get fired up about religion and spirituality because they want to have a cause. They want to belong to something that's bigger than themselves, that sort of validates them and gives them a sense of significance. So it's not really mostly about engaging and relating to God and knowing the Lord Jesus deeper and deeper. What a friend we have in Jesus. It's about being part of a cause. Others come to church because they like to have meaningful tasks. They feel kind of self-fulfilled and when they put certain talents or gifts to work and, and people admire that and appreciate that, then that's sort of self-affirming and rewarding. And so people plunge in. And you know, I know people who can be like the hardest worker at church. And yet, when it comes to their actual walk with the Lord, their relationship with the Lord, if you try to pivot the conversation toward that, it seems like there's a real level of discomfort. Now let me say, I know this by my own experience. Kathy Keller has written, Timothy Keller's wife, about the special challenges of being in ministry when it comes to keeping it real in our relationship to God. It's our job. It's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray publicly. We're supposed to handle God's word. That's our job. But none of that, doing that publicly in acts of public ministry are no guarantee that we're really still doing it from the heart and that the thing that matters most to us when nobody's watching and nobody else is listening is I want to know Christ, loving him and being loved by him. 
Some, it seems, get involved in religion and Christianity because, or stay involved because they kind of want to build their own little spiritual empire. Churches can become the spiritual empire of a dominant alpha kind of personality pastor. Christian colleges, Christian podcasts, how much of a platform, how much influence. Providing spiritual goods and services to keep the customer satisfied so they'll keep coming and they'll keep giving and we'll be able to keep the lights on and the programs going. But not at the heart of it, really caring most about how are we doing when it comes to engaging with God? For some, the church has become kind of a platform political, for political purposes to win the culture war. For others, it's a matter they really crave fellowship. They love to socialize. And as I'm going to say in a minute, all of these have an aspect that are a part of real Christianity, but not when they're the main thing. For others, it's wanting God's blessing for our life goals. Maybe they're just starting a family and they're scared to death about what all that means and so they decide to head to church and they just want to kind of guarantee the divine blessing on their child rearing. Or maybe it's their business enterprise and, you know, they want God's blessing. They want God's help. So to make sure their business or their career path thrives and succeeds. For many, and I know that as a pastoral counselor, it's a matter of wanting God to fix some particular problem that they're facing. And I'll have people come and, you know, we start where we are, but they'll come and there's this particular thing, maybe it's a difficult relationship or trouble in the marriage, and they'll come and they'll want the pastor as kind of God's agent to fix this. They don't really want anything else touched. They don't really, really want to think about their whole-souled relationship to God, but it's just kind of targeted. Others are into spirituality because they enjoy deeply moving spiritual experiences. And so they want to come where they'll get, as one friend, missionary friend even said, you know, some people it seems like they're just kind of looking for the feels when it comes together. And maybe through the music or the lights or even the, the, the dynamic way that the message is given. Others are trying to salve a guilty conscience. And they think, I'll get some points from heaven if I go to church, at least every now and then. Or, I just don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. So I'm going to connect with religion and spirituality. Now, like I said a minute ago, in a sense, almost all of these goals have a place in true Christian experience. But none of them are right and good if they're the main thing that we're aiming for in our relating to God. Not only that, all the things I mention amount to using God for some higher, more ultimate purpose. They amount to loving God less 
than loving someone or something else. And that is wrong, and it's idolatrous, and it ends up being futile. It doesn't work. We ought to want to know and love God for his own sake. For him, it's literally perfectly true to know him is to love him. To see the beauties, the glories of the Lord and his attributes, his ways, his works. If our hearts weren't fallen, they would leap into loving God and being devoted to him. He is entirely worthy and deserving of our supreme, ultimate love and devotion. The praise of heaven, Revelation 4.11 is, you are worthy, O Lord. You are deserving to receive glory and honor and power. Remember where we started in John 17.3. This is the main idea. Knowing God, rightly relating to God, is the very de definition of eternal life. We know for sure that in heaven, that will be the main thing, engaging gladly with God. That's what being a Christian is fundamentally now as well. It's about knowing God and relating to God and experiencing him as he communicates himself to us by his word. And again, this isn't a deluxe version of discipleship or Christianity. This is Christianity. The Bible warns us away from those who have some kind of religious profession, but it's not real and it's not transforming. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, and by this we know we've come to know him. It's assuring to have some criteria listed for us in inspired scripture that can give us and those close to us who can kind of coach us spiritually so that we can have assurance, I've got the real thing. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, John says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in that person truly, the love of God is perfected. If our supposed relationship with God, if our supposed attachment to religion isn't transforming us into loving, obedient followers of Jesus Christ, it's not the real thing. This no language, it works both ways. Paul says in Galatians 4, the only thing more important than our knowing God is that he knows us. And one of the most chilling passages in all of the Bible, in the New Testament, from Jesus himself is in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, talking about the final day of judgment, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many miracles and the Lord says then I will tell them plainly 
I never knew you. There was never that relationship. Remember again, Jeremiah chapter 9. I want to go back there just for a few minutes, a couple minutes. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. If you're a human being, especially if you're a professing Christian, and the thing that you're most excited about is your wisdom, your savvy. Don't boast in that, primarily. Let not the rich man, oh well, you are well resourced, and you can make things happen. And you just have, you know, through you've accumulated, and you are proud of that. And that's sort of what gives you identity, your significance, your clout. No, Jeremiah says, don't let the rich man boast in his riches. The mighty man boast in his might, influence. Let him who boasts, let him who glories, let him who rejoices. If you're going to get fired up about something in life, boast in this. I understand and know the Lord. I know what he's really like because I have an inspired Bible and the Holy Spirit by his gentle grace opened my eyes to see the truth. I know what God's really like. He practices steadfast love, justice and, faith and righteousness in the earth and he delights in these things. And then that revelation of God just expands and progresses more and more from Old Testament to New Testament until the word becomes flesh and dwells among us and we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what you should be concerned about. And having that, you have the most important thing. Boast in that. That covenantal friendship with God that kind of vital experiential relationship with God that's fueled by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit working through the word he inspired. This means, by the way, that what you really want from a church, and I was talking to a, a new friend just this week, and he's looking for a church. Let me say this, what you really want from a church and what you really want from a worship service is a heavy, efficacious dose of God's transforming self-revelation in his word. Let the word, the message from and about Christ richly inhabit you, plural, your services, your times together, Paul says in Colossians 3.16. The word in music and message, scripture readings and prayers, and participating in the visible words of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because all of this is tied to the vital spiritual principle that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. How does transformation really take place? We all, with unveiled face, because the Spirit's graciously taken away the veil that kept us blind before, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the process of that beholding, the process of that contemplation, into the same image, 
into Christ's image from one degree of glory to another. One degree of Christ-likeness, one aspect of fruit of the Spirit to another. And that process goes forward as we get heavy-duty exposure to God's self-communication. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, Paul says. One more time, where do we behold the glory of the Lord? In the written-down self-revelation. And the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 4, turns the light on, and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what transforms us. All this means that what you definitely don't want when it comes to a church or a church service is some kind of spiritual placebo that's not going to have any real health-giving and enduring effect. That can apply to music and what one theologian has called the concertization of Sunday morning, but it can also apply to messages and to sermons where the sermon seems to be viewed as little more than kind of a Bible TED talk that gives you tips for your own self-determined path of success. None of that is the same as engaging with God by word and spirit in a way that really, truly transforms. What we're aiming for when we talk about knowing God is described in a passage to me that's been so helpful from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Some might say, well, that's Old Testament. Don't misunderstand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Same God, same way of salvation, same goals of the spiritual life. It's richer now, it's clearer now, thank God, in the New Covenant. But this is as true for us as it was for Israel. What does the Lord your God ask of you but this? to fear the Lord your God, so to regard him with utter seriousness, to walk in all his ways. Jesus says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And then it keeps centering down to the core, to love him, to be loyally and affectionately, affectionately devoted to Jesus, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. I want us to realize this is the only thing that can do us the good that we need. Augustine was right. You have made us for yourself, for this relationship. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. J.I. Packer, who just went to be with the Lord recently, wrote a great book on knowing God that I heartily recommend. He talks about the benefits and blessings of having a real relationship with God. Don't have time for all of them, but one of them is those who know God have great contentment because of God. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they've known God and God's known them. 
and that this relationship guarantees God's love and favor and care in life through death and on forever. And then he quotes most of Romans chapter 8. Consider this too as we start to draw to a close. All the other things that I described a while ago, things that we make the most important in our lives, more important than this relationship to God, are what the Bible calls broken cisterns. Cisterns. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have done two evil things, two crooked, boy, did they get this wrong things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, water that actually satisfies, and they've dug for themselves cracked, broken cisterns that can hold no water at all. I turned 60 this year. I've been watching for a long time, including in my own life. Anything apart from God and Jesus Christ is a cracked cistern that is never going to satisfy. What is my own experience of what I'm trying to describe today? knowing God in a transforming, life-shaping way. Well, this is one of those areas where, as C.S. Lewis says, my imagination or my understanding exceeds my obedience. But I'll say this. I've tasted just enough and certainly seen it in the lives of others to know it's a real thing and a real possibility. And it is the essence of real Christianity. And so even though I fall so very short of what the Apostle Paul had become by God's grace, I still resonate with his passionate aspiration recorded in Philippians 3 where this man who seemed to know Christ so well says, I want to know Christ. So again, Remember our key verse. This is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Two passages to close. First of all, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians in chapter 1. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. And then he goes on, what we need to understand, the confident hope he has given to those whom he called and the incredible greatness of God's power for those who believe in him. Power to do what those broken cisterns could never do. Power to really change you, to sanctify you, to comfort you, to give you a sense of his presence, to enable you to serve in ways that really do matter eternally. To give you, even in the midst of hardship, joy. The Apostle Peter agrees, putting it simply and directly in this prayer wish. 2 Peter 1, 2. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Well, how does that happen? As you grow 
in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Is this what your Christianity means to you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is an unspeakable gift that you would offer to us rebel, wayward sinners ever the opportunity to be brought back into your friendship and into your family. But that's exactly the message of the good news. It's all of grace because Jesus did it all and paid it all. And now you're inviting us into that friendship. You're commanding all people everywhere to repent. Why would we ever refuse this? Why would we keep dropping our bucket into broken cisterns? When there's a relationship out there, a friendship out there for us that can save and sanctify, comfort, console, guide, and transform. Give us the wisdom to pray with Paul. I want to know Christ. In his name, amen.